When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So... You want to kill him? You want to kill him? I want to kill him? (laughs) What about you, Mr. Vick? I'm going to kill you. Yes, there are still people out there who want to kill John Wick. In fact, a whole lot of people. Enough to fill 169 minutes, Josh. John Wick does have an epic length, but does that make it an epic? We'll discuss in our review. Plus, our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon continues with a Douglas Sirk melodrama. Bet you'll never guess which one of those two films made me cry earlier today. I know, I'm, I'm still broken up over John's dog. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Film Spotting. We're providing a pretty healthy movie diet this week, Josh. We've got Bullets and Bloodshed, courtesy of Jonathan Wick. And we've got a sort of weepy 50s melodrama, courtesy of Douglas Sirk. And then we've got whatever Film Spotting Madness best of the 1960s is. <laughs> hey, this is the way to live, Adam. This is what your movie di- – well, yeah, I don't, I don't know what Film Spotting Madness is. I don't know if anybody should live like that. Later in the show, we'll continue our Sight and Sound Top 100 Marathon with Cirque's Imitation of Life, plus the final four of Film Spotting Madness Revealed. Voting is open now at filmspottingmadness.com. And those polls close at 11 a.m. Central Time on Monday, April 3rd. This is now your weekly reminder to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating in positive review. We want to thank Joseph D'Andrea, who said, love film, then you'll love film spotting. And also big thanks to Terraforming Mars shared this. My brain really appreciates each episode as it's so fulfilling. So thank you to the both of them. If you want to share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would be grateful. I think he just meant filling. Let's go with the healthy diet motif. He just meant it's so filling. Okay, that works too. And now, if he's back, 
so are we, with a review of John Wick, Chapter 4. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. A new day is dawning. New ideas, new rules, new management. We've known each other since we were nine Who is this? The Marquis de Gramont. Challenge him to single combat. Win or lose, it's a way out. I don't sit at the table. Your family does. Please pray for me. I was the black sheep of the family. Man has to look his best when it's time to get married. Or buried. I'm going to need a gun. Goodbye, my friend. It's hard to die. There's a scene early on in John Wick Chapter 4, Adam, in which Bill Skarsgård's new bad guy, a persnickety sadist called the Marquis who's been tasked with eliminating Keanu Reeves' rogue assassin, he gives a speech after turning over an elegant, oversized hourglass. As the sand slowly slips through while Skarsgård takes time and care with his words, the moment struck me as both a nice piece of dramatic art direction and something of a thesis statement. It's as if returning director Chad Stahelski and his collaborators, including screenwriters Shay Hatton and Michael Finch, are telling us, we're going to take our time, and we're going to take a lot of it. John Wick Chapter 4 runs nearly three hours. Much of that screen time is devoted to seemingly endless fight scenes in which Wick, still trying to free himself from the arcane elite society that runs his profession, punches, kicks, shoots, stabs his way through batteries of goons. But there are other indulgences, if you want to use that word. We get a lot of extra characters. We get a bunch of subplots. All of this gets considerable attention. Now, we both appreciate a lean running time, Adam, though I think you might sigh a bit more loudly than I do when we learn that a movie is pushing the 180-minute mark. So I knew I had to ask about how you experienced the 169 minutes of John Wick, Chapter 4. Specifically, give me one instance where you felt, hey, it's earning this time. It's making good use of it. And then maybe give me something that you feel clearly should have been cut. Okay. I think I can address your concerns here, Josh. And I will first say that just in case there's any confusion about this, I don't think any good movie can be too long. So I might bristle a little bit or have some negative energy around how much time I may have to commit to something. But once the movie gets going, if it's doing its job, I'm all in. A movie should be as long as it needs to be. Fair enough. I'm going to quickly, though, do what John Wick 4 doesn't do and I'm going to cut to the chase. One, four, two, three. That's the ranking. Yeah. Okay. We could start there too. I'm with you. One, four, you said two, three, right? Two, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was hoping you were going to come as soon as I posted that ranking on Letterboxd, I had regret. Oh, I didn't see yours. Yeah. Same ranking. I had regret because the more I thought about and wrote about chapter four, I want to say it's the best. And I was hoping you'd come in here and take me to task for not making that move and being bold enough and saying clearly four is the best. And then you can't do that. Okay. No, I can't. can't. Well, go on. Chapter four is resoundingly the best Wick sequel. Sure. But I still prefer cold-blooded efficiency over bloody excess, no matter how artfully and at times playfully staged it might be. So in terms of that ranking, 
there's a pretty wide gap between mm. one and okay. how much I appreciate it and two and three. Four sits in between there. It's nestled in that gap somewhere around the middle. The generosity question, though, is a really, really good one because I think it's at the core of the challenges Wick 4 poses to a viewer and not because some things it devotes time to are rewarding and others less so. Of course, that's the case. What first comes to mind are those extra characters, as you referred to them. It's the through line of friendship and more specifically, the characters and the performances that stem from those friendships. And maybe that's because on some basic level, I was just happy this movie was halfway interested in something, anything other than itself after chapter three, Parabellum, especially. And it could have been because the Fast X trailer played right before John Wick chapter four. And this script, the Wick script references friendship enough that I wondered, Josh, if Stahelski and his writers were actually taking a little jab at the Fast films. Like, oh, you're all about family? Well, we're the big action franchise. It's all about friends. <laughs> but there, there is some actual heft to the relationships here and the tough choices that are born from those relationships with old friends like Ian McShane's Winston, speaking of heavy, Lance Reddick as Sharon, the concierge of the Continental who serves under Winston, Lawrence Fishburne reprising his role as the Bowery King, and with new friends, some that are new to us, and John Wick, others that are just new to us. Hiroyuki Sanada as Shimazu, the manager of the Osaka so Continental. A familiar face to probably anyone who watches this movie, if not a familiar name. He is so good, and... Probably even better, Donnie Yen as Kane, oh. this, this Hong Kong action cinema legend who I don't really know from that work. And now I want to become more familiar with those films. And I know we'll talk about Yen and his performance more. Less weighty, but still fun, is Shamir Anderson and his tracker and his little arc with Wick and Rina Sawayama as Shimazu's daughter, Akira, who you can't really call a friend of Wick's. Her assistance is begrudging at best, but I'd watch an entire movie about her. Let's just reboot the franchise with her. So what's the issue? I said this is right at the core of the, the challenge for me. Well, there has to be some heft to all these relationships. Otherwise, the whole enterprise kind of falls apart. Through three sequels, I've had a difficult time reconciling John Wick as a friend, constantly putting his friends in positions where he knows they are going to suffer because of him and what he's asking of them. No, arguably, he doesn't really have a choice in these matters if he wants to continue living himself. Trust me, I get it. I am this close to penning an essay called Sisyphus and the Myth of John Wick. But at some point, I'm with Akira, who expresses this to her father early in the film, a version of why should all these people have their lives destroyed because of his bad choices? And why doesn't John at some point just decide to stop? More than any philosophical aspect to that or believability factor there, I just found the favor hopping and the invoking of allegedly unbreakable rules followed swiftly by suffering for those granting the favors to be a little bit tedious. For, I think, 
solves its own problem as best it can by making those friends really fun to watch and by convincing me just enough that these relationships actually matter enough. Yeah, I think that didn't bother me as much. Fair point about that being the through line in the franchise. I don't think it bothered me as much here because it acknowledges it, as you say, in the Akira character. Mm -hmm. And so it's letting us know, yes, this is an issue. It's an issue formally for the film, but also narratively. And these characters are going to call him out on this. So, so I actually like that. And then the reason it's still important to me that Wick does put these people in danger and they don't refuse him is because if you're going to make any distinction between the characters in this world, who mm-hmm. are all, I think this movie emphasizes more than any of the others, they're all trapped in hell. Some of them are demons. Some of them are ghosts. There is nothing, there's no one living a flourishing life in the world of John Wick. It, it is can all degrees. come crumbling down at any moment. Yes. And it is degrees of suffering that they have brought upon themselves and is circular and is constantly it's it is like a, a circle of hell that we're living through here. But I do like that one of the ways to make distinctions within this world is who is going to choose something that puts them at risk, that serves something other than this merciless goal of coming out on top. And Mm -hmm. I see that's where we see things like the Hiroyuki Sonata character because of his friendship, choosing to give Wick some sort of refuge. It's not Mm -hmm. smart. It doesn't make sense. And that's why I love that Akira calls her father. He's dooming himself. Exactly. That's why it has heft. That's why it has heft. And even, you know, Donnie Yen's Kane is similar. He Mm -hmm. is in the middle. He is trying to make choices. He's trying to find a way to live in this hell and possibly protect his daughter, who we don't get to meet as much as we meet Akira. There's one scene where we see her, but we understand that this is being held against him. He's being ordered, take out Wick or we'll take out your daughter. And again, a common motif in films like this, but it not only gives a little bit of heft, as you say, but also connects. It gives us this theme of as much as friendship, I think there's a father-daughter through line in this film. We have, you know, those the two characters we've already mentioned in Osaka, the father and daughter running the um, the the hotel there, and then we have Donnie Yen's Kane, and as I said, his daughter, and how that negotiation, that relationship is negotiated, and how they're all relationships with John Wick play a part in how that's going to play out, and so I think that all comes to a head. In the finale, absolutely, where Kane comes to the fore. And I guess that's one of the places I would say, okay, if you're going to give me a movie for three hours, this is what I want. I want a long section in Osaka where we're going to learn about Akira and Shimazu as father-daughter, what they've tried to build here, how they interact with each other, a long Mm -hmm. walking and talking scene where it takes us a while to catch up that, oh, no, she's not just his concierge. She's actually his daughter who they're talking about in the third person because they're acknowledging the different roles they play. As you said, Adam, that could support a movie of its own. And I think that's all to Chapter 4's credit because, again, it makes that lengthy section in Osaka have its own value and then reverberates forward when similar themes play out in the character of Cain and his daughter. So uh, I think that was a surprise to me, knowing it, knowing going in that this running time was so long. I knew we were going to get these long fight sequences. And I'll say this about the fight sequences, too. 
I fully understand and appreciate that their length is the point. Mm -hmm. This has always been part of the John Wick character, right? His endurance and Reeves performance, which is not very verbal at all, but like so many of his good performances, more physical, especially in the way he can embody weariness and invincibility. Somehow we believe that this guy is on the verge of death, but he's not going to die. And that sustains these lengthy fight sequences. Now, I will say some of them are sustained in a more rewarding way for me because there is an emotional element, a thematic element, a narrative element. It is not just a physical question at play. Is John Wick going to survive this? And that's why this thing is going on for 18 minutes. But it is also, is he going to survive this for this reason? How does it affect this other combatant in the scene? What would be the outcome in different ways? It's how it's the way we talk about dance sequences, right, Adam? I mean, I was thinking of our discussion of um, the Magic Mike films and when we ranked our favorite sequences and we ended up talking about hey we like this one a little bit better because they're all well choreographed but this one actually had some emotional implications or some narrative implications it's the same thing with an action scene and i think john wick chapter four has some scenes that go on just to be long and show us that john wick endures but it also has some that go on to be long this incredible sequence on the steps leading up to Sacré-Cœur in Paris that has all these other things I'm talking about it has narrative progression different developments implications for John Wick implications for Kane implications for the entire series that makes even better use of the extended running time at least as the fight sequences are concerned well it's not just how we talk about great dance sequences or action sequences. It's how we talk about narratives generally, great narratives generally. You're describing stakes. There's something at stake in the scene, and it could be between the characters or various thematic things that it's teasing out, intellectual ideas that it's provoking. For me, you mentioned Sacre Coeur, and we really can't dive into it here without getting into spoiler territory. I will note that if you've seen the movie and you haven't read this article already, and you really want to do a deep dive on how the stairs sequence came to be, our friend Matt Singer did an interview with the director, Chad Stahelski, where he just focused on that sequence. And it really is illuminating and a fun read. I imagine most people watching the moment of the movie <laughs> that is the moment of that sequence, certainly, most people are going to react to it similarly. And it will go something like this. Seriously? Come on. Followed by, okay, that's pretty brilliant. It's just a matter of where you put the emphasis. And I think I know where you put the emphasis. I put the emphasis a little bit more on, I recognize the brilliance, but it's more seriously. <laughs> really? Okay. And I think part of that and part of my dissatisfaction with the film generally is when I think back to the first wick, and the effectiveness of it. It's what was at stake. It's the consequences, the ramifications of your actions that really matter. Slapping someone has ramifications. Hitting someone, even just saying the wrong thing to the wrong person. Taking aim at someone or something in the case of John Wick's dog. Pulling the trigger. It all, it all matters. Without consequences, you're also without stakes. And one of the elements they add here that 
provides this heightened sense of invincibility to John Wick 4 that I think detracts ultimately is this invention that all of them seem to have, which are these bulletproof suits. Yeah. <laughs> and those those effectively turn John Wick into Superman if Superman spent most of his time running around with his cape in front of his body. There's precision, great precision to the choreography of all these fight scenes. Incredible proficiency, technically. But in terms of what's happening within some of these ambitious sequences, in terms of the characters and our investment in them, there isn't the precision, Josh, that I came to really love about the first Wick in particular. Well, real quick about the Kevlar suits, which they do acknowledge eventually. For a while, you're like, wait a minute. Are, what is happening? Like, what? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm glad they do nod to it. The one thing I did like about that addition is, and by no means am I saying this is not a movie overwhelmed by guns. <laughs> but Very much so. In... If you are putting it on, you know, a trajectory of the John Wick films, I think it has backed away from it. It's one of the reasons, it's the main reason chapter three is my least favorite is because I felt that is where, that is where the gun fetishism had gone completely overboard. I feel like this movie backs away from it a little bit and the suits are part of the reason for that because it brings it back to what the first movie had. It brings, even the gunplay has an intimacy now because it allows the combatants to get closer. And what that does for me is, yes, guns are involved, but it is making it a personal, it's an actual body that is suffering from these shots or attempted shots. The people are closer. They grab each other now. They look each other in the face. It sounds ridiculous, but there's just enough humanity to the fight scenes, even when they involve guns, which is something the first film had and the middle two did not, where it was more like just bullet spraying and mowing people down everywhere. Yeah, see, that, and it might have been a video game. That's the effect I had watching this. I mean, I understand what you're saying. Ultimately, eventually, they have to take each other out at close proximity yes. it's a little more intimate but before that there's going to be 15 to 20 shots fired that have no impact on anyone they might as right. well just be shooting blindly in the room right and i guess the distinction i'm making is like in the other films i just remember a lot of scenes like that where the result is that everyone you're just having bodies like dead bodies everywhere just going everywhere and there's no thought there's no implication. It, there's actually a good example. One of the things I would cut out going back to my original question, even though I've seen some people praise it, there's a long sequence in a house going under renovation yep. that is shot from overhead. I was going to say it. That's unbroken take that yep. comes you know, mm -hmm. from room to room and you're watching Wick just basically, it's essentially a video game first person shooter, but from far above. You're not even from Wick's perspective. That is the opposite of what I'm talking about. That's where Human beings just become targets. And again, you know, I'm not trying to make some sort of moral stance. I'm just talking about degrees of difference when I watch gun violence in movies. I at least appreciate when the violence is recognized as violence rather than some sort of game. And I think for the most part, and the Kevlar suits come into play with this for me because it makes it more intimate. It makes it more personal. It makes it more visceral. Um, it makes you recognize with the fact that people are actually getting shot here, um, which again, maybe that's not enough of a difference for, for some people, but for me, 
um, it's worth noting. I want to go back real quick to the soccer course stairs sequence, though, and we can't really have a good argument without spoilers here. Just to say, um, the reason it is the defining sequence for me is because, and I'll speak vaguely, we have this long, again, endurance sequence, which we pretty much know. And I was starting to tire of this Mm -hmm. is at the end of the film. And I thought we've done this a lot, right? He's just up against 300 men. And then we get the twist. Let's just call it, which I think is the best joke in the film as well. It's quite funny. Um, I'll just leave it there. That's one surprise that I appreciated. But then at the end of that joke, there is another character who becomes involved, which brings in everything I'd been talking about earlier, all of the thematic elements, the relational elements. And it also complicates things because we don't exactly know what does this character's presence mean for, we know what it means for the immediate moment, which is thrilling. It's like, oh no, 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 this is not happening now. It is. I found that thrilling, but it also has implications for, okay, if, Wick gets to the top of the stairs again. This new wrinkle adds a whole different wrinkle for what we are waiting for at the top of the stairs. So mm-hmm. anyway, that's just that's why I found it brilliant and did not have the come on reaction at all. I had the come on early on when I was like, are we going to do this again? And then I and then I realized, oh, we're doing this again so that we can do all this other stuff. Yeah, I can like where it ends up, but it's whether or not I, as a viewer, have the endurance to get there. And you acknowledge you were struggling with that as well. But look, I can't write my Sisyphus essay without that sequence, so I can have conflicted feelings about it. The overhead sequence that you mentioned is one I want to touch on just because that is the example for me to answer your question. If you could eliminate one action scene here, it definitely wouldn't be the Arc de Triomphe sequence. That's a hoot. It's an inversion of the traditional action scene that is usually about forward motion and and characters in motion. And here it's like a game of Frogger from hell. I thought that was pretty inspired. But as he's going through the house, and part of this could have been that <laughs> of all the movies to bring into the discussion here, it could have been because I just watched Danny Boyle's Millions and talked about it with the blank check guys in their podcast. And early in that film, the first night they move into their new home, there is a sequence that's just like this one here. Few fewer guns in millions and and not as many bullets. Yeah, but, I don't remember that about millions. But it's an overhead sequence. Their first night in all of their new rooms, and it goes through the top of the house and has this this heaven's eye view on the kids. And it it gives us a sense of the space. It shows us how the characters are existing within that space. It also gives us the sense that maybe the mom who's passed away, it's as if it's it's her view looking over these kids. My point is, it serves a function. And I was watching this overhead sequence here, and I've seen some people online call it out and post screenshots from it and be like, God-level right. choreography and cinematography. And I'm saying, to to what end? To what end? There, there was none with that sequence, so we, we agree on that. One of the characters in the film, we haven't mentioned yet, because he doesn't fit into my friendship model at all, but who I really did appreciate. And at first, I didn't recognize him, just because I haven't seen this actor in a lot of things. This isn't a well-known face to me. And then I put it together. I only take my sadist persnickety. Josh, well said. <laughs> he's, by really, he's really I good. I really like Bill Skarsgård. Yeah. As what's how his about his exact suits? title? 
the marquis. The he's marquis. the marquis. Because I, I think he's supposed it. to actually be French, though. He, yeah. It's yeah, some indeterminate so. accent. I mean, production-wise and, yes, costuming Oh, so wise, great. He is, a, he is a capital V villain, and it's a capital V villain type of performance. It has to be. But I think that Sarsgaard is smart enough and talented enough not to overdo it. He's really quite subtle, and maybe it's because he can let his wardrobe do all the fancy talking for him. It's it's a wonder. But he's scary less as someone who poses a physical threat to anyone, though we get a sense that he's comfortable enough in that realm. But he's scary more as a bureaucrat who will relentlessly seek to pursue and maintain power no matter the cost. I, I really enjoyed watching him. You come here thinking there is a way out of this world for you, Mr. Wick. There is not. The Centre Pompidou. Sacre Coeur. Sacre Coeur. Weapons. If you win, the table will honor its word. You will have your freedom, but you won't take it. Blades. Yeah, I think he's great, and it's it's the costumes, it's obviously how he carries himself. It's also the settings. Notice how every time we have a meeting with him, mm-hmm. it's somewhere different that communicates 1% of the 1%. Right. This guy's always surrounded by lavish spreads, tables of food that (laughs) he can't possibly finish himself. Right. And yes, he's in a a barn, like an equestrian stable. Mm -hmm. And then my favorite one, which is actually and here's another thing I liked about this installment. And compared to a lot of the other big blockbusters we get that don't do this, real sets, real locations that you can touch and feel. How about the great showdown between the Marquis and Winston in the Louvre in Paris, Mm -hmm. in one of the galleries? I I think there, I I had to look it up um, just to figure out because they stand before this famous painting to have this debate, uh, Liberty Leading the People, Eugene Delacroix. The July Revolution of 1830 is what it's depicting, and it's just this huge, massive canvas. And you have the marquee kind of sitting in front of it just on his own couch. He somehow has brought in, again, more food and drinks, and this has been arranged for him just so he could sit here and have this meeting with Winston. And it's a fantastic use of production design, art direction, all of that to to express character. So I am with you on Skarsgård. But really, I think people are going to be upset that we have mentioned him a couple of times, but not specifically We're talked. We're building up the suspense. We're building up to Donnie Yen because this is the reason for me that I still think I, I should probably bump this up to the best John Wick film for the record. I thoroughly enjoyed this character and this performance because have we mentioned yet that Kane is a blind assassin? He no. can't see, right? We've This has been done before many, many times. It's nothing new. As a matter of fact, it's a riff on a character Donnie Yen played in the film that most Western audiences probably know him from, Rogue One. 
Here, though, what I like about it is that so often blindness is used for a character like this as some sort of superpower. Um, you know, it's it, it's either because other senses have been naturally heightened or it's even more metaphysical than that, right? Yeah. What's that Denzel Washington movie? I'm kind there, of spoiling it, but he's yeah, blind and because of it, that sounds is, familiar. Is almost like a superhero. Exactly. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Here, Kane like stumbles. He trips. He has to use his his cane to actually mm-hmm. feel his way around things. And I just thought that added a complete it added two things. It added suspense. We somehow worry that he's going to be able to find his way, but then it also adds impressiveness when you realize, oh, He'll be just fine. He's the most capable person in the room. It's going to look a little different. His techniques are a little different, but he's incredibly skilled. And yet at the same time, he's also has to manage this. Um, his blindness is something that has to be managed. So I just thought that was a unique way of handling the stunts and the character. And then also going back to what we've been talking about, that there's actually some things to think about here. Yen carries a soulful fatigue that is of a perfect match with Keanu Reeves, John Wick. Mm-hmm. That's one of the defining qualities of Wick. And to have this character come in who is kind of experiencing what Wick has experienced, you know, it's he is one of the people in this hell who is going to make those choices I talked about, where he's going to actually put himself at risk for someone else. And so to pit them against each other throughout the film, a number of ways, including in that magnificent climax, I think was brilliant. And I think choosing Yen to be able to do all of the things a part like this requires was just a masterstroke. The book of Eli is the Denzel Washington. There you go. I was trying to think of, I really think that's an astute point about how his blindness is portrayed here and it being something he has to navigate. You're right. We usually don't see that on screen or certainly with these types of characters and the movie makes a point of it, but think about how much Donnie Yen is able to convey. You mentioned that soulful fatigue. One of the ways any actor or actress can portray soulfulness, the best tool they have at their disposal, I would argue is their eyes and Mm -hmm. his eyes are always covered up with sunglasses, say for one quick shot, maybe that's the only way we see him in this film. And yet you are always aware of his weariness, his resignation, and he's able to convey a warmth for John. His feelings for John still come through amidst all of those other feelings and emotions. And then there's the, the gracefulness of his movement. It's not so much that He's one of these badass characters, though he is a badass, who you're just marveling at his his speed and his technique and his power, though there are times you are a little bit in awe of that. It's really just more about his economy of movement, which I think actually ties back to yes. your point about his blindness, right? He has to be economical. He can't afford to take risks. Yeah, exactly. Right. A, a, one wrong step is is almost a doubly wrong one in his situation. You know what else he is also? I, I just, the scene for him early on comes to mind. He's very funny. How about he in is. that early fight in Osaka that's going on forever and Kane is there. He's arrived early on. He's supposed to be going after Wick as well, but he's just in the kitchen 
eating a bowl of noodles casually waiting for Wick to go through the first hundred men before he's even going to engage. I, I thought that was a, a pretty funny touch. And then one last point about the length and how well it's used. I love Ian McShane as Winston. I love that they gave him approximately six and a half minutes to say the word aggrieved because it was <laughs> yeah. worth every second. <laughs> <laughs> he has a way with language, and it is one of the joys so good. of John Wick Chapter 4. John Wick Chapter 4 is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And if you'd like more John Wick talk, we'd love to point you in the direction of our friends at the next picture show. Indeed, they're pairing John Wick Chapter 4 with Lee Marvin in John Borman's Point blank not one i have seen since Mm. we mentioned this pairing last week either so i've got to get on that i have seen it it's a great double bill there your next picture show hosts are tasha robinson keith phipps scott tobias and genevieve kosky new episodes of the next picture show post every tuesday wherever you get your podcasts and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net you should make more like this i'm enjoying my retirement i get up I do a little of this, a little of that, and before you know it, it's time to watch TV again. That sounds terrible. A couple of recent Oscar nominees there from the same movie, in fact. Michelle Williams and Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans here. They're in Showing Up, the new film from Kelly Reichert. And Josh, we've both seen the movie. We can also attest to the fact that there's a third recent Oscar nominee in Showing Up That's right. as well. Hong Chow plays an artist and friend and the landlord to Michelle Williams' character. This might be a bit of a spoiler, Josh, but I'm going to say it anyway for people that are looking forward to this film and eager to see it, may not be aware. Showing up is a comedy. Now, Kelly Reichert, when I talked to her, didn't love that term being applied to her film, but she she acknowledged that there is a fair amount of humor in showing up, which is something I don't regularly associate with Kelly Riker. No, but it is a funny film. I Mm -hmm. think the more familiar you are with the art world, let's say art school, that sort of milieu, I think you'd Mm -hmm. probably find it funnier than other people. But yeah, she, she didn't like that. She doesn't want you to slot it in the comedy genre, huh? Well, that's definitely how it's being sold. So Ms. Reichert will have to get on board with that designation. Josh, you are on spring break. Next week, I will be here with one Michael Phillips. We will talk about showing up. We'll also play my conversation with Kelly Reichert. And we'll talk about Ben Affleck's new film, Air, starring Matt Damon. We finally talk about a basketball movie, and you take the week off, Josh. That's all right. I, you know, I tend to college, you I don't like care. To keep- my basketball and my movies separate generally, okay. you okay. know, there've been yep. good basketball movies, but yeah, I don't need to mix the two all the time. Next week will also be championship week for film spotting madness. Best of the sixties. Michael, of course, insisted on being here for that. <laughs> yes. The irony of that is so wonderful. You're always gone the first week of April when we're crowning the film spotting mm. madness champion. It's just, it's so, it's so sweet for me to get to look across the camera or look across the table and see Michael and just see the, the elation. See in someone his eyes. even, even less enthused at this point in the tournament than I am. <laughs> yeah. I think and, actually 
doesn't Michael, I think he's submitted like 10 separate prediction ballots under different pseudonyms. He's so invested, finds right. it so much fun. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing he'll be here. My notes also say that I will, of course, get Michael's thoughts on the Adam Driver Dinos in Space movie. <laughs> we're we're going to ride this bit into the Sam ground. will not give up. Well, Michael Phillips, a famous Chicago newspaper film critic, there was a very famous Chicago newspaper film critic over at the Tribune's competitor, the Chicago Sun-Times, one Roger Ebert and Josh Yu are, to the best of your abilities, trying to pick up the mantle for one Roger Ebert. You will be hosting an event that he used to host coming up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, Ebert interrupt us at the Conference on World Affairs in Boulder, Colorado. It's it's one of the, I just kind of smile and nod politely, one of the um, idiosyncrasies of this experience, Adam, every year being told, you're no Roger Ebert, you know, or, you know, Roger used to do it this way. And I yeah, I know, I know he was a pretty good critic. <laughs> As someone, I don't know if I was the first person to do it or not, but I was one of the first to teach a film class at the University of Chicago's Graham School, you visited there a couple times as we talked about a few movies with my class, and Roger started that. And I would get students who would like to point out to me from time to time that, you know, they had Roger and he used to do it like this. Yep. <laughs> sounds sounds very familiar. You've got – there are some diehards out there, man. They've been doing this for decades, all those years that, that Ebert did it. So it's pretty cool that they're still a part of it and – Overall, it's been a great experience. Really excited to do it this year where we're going to dig into Honeyland, the 2019 docudrama about a solitary beekeeper in a Macedonian village. And yeah, for those who don't know, it's called Interruptus because we watch Honeyland the first day and then we're going to spend two days going through it, stopping it whenever somebody has a comment, wants to ask a question, share some information, and hopefully over the course of two sessions, we'll get through the entire film again. Anyone's welcome to join us. This is free. If you can get out there to Boulder, the University of Colorado Boulder campus is where the Conference on World Affairs takes place. And it's going to be April 12 through 14. We are going to do, as we always do, a film spotting meetup. There's a couple of folks, at least. I mean, last year for Jaws, we had a ton of film spotting folks, but every year there's a good handful. And so we try to get together and have a meetup at the end of Interruptus. That's going to be Friday, April 14, 8 p.m. in Boulder at our usual place, The Sink. Have a few folks already signed up. We put a form where you can RSVP. We'll link to that in the show notes or check it out at filmspotting.net. And I hope to see some of you out there. And just a quick note for those planning to attend and participate in the interrupting. One of the things Josh has told me off the mic is that he's really been putting in the work, doing a lot of research. And what he's really hoping for is a lot of questions about the specifics of beekeeping, mm. about bees and their their wings and their, their stingers wings. and bees who knows what wings. else, how they, how they make the honey. Yes. Josh, you, you're really hoping for a lot of intricate questions about that. So please make good on that. Josh wants that. You know what? You think you're setting me up for failure, but here's one of the brilliant things about being part of this conference that brings in people from all over the world in all different fields. <laughs> You'll just defer. There's a pretty good chance that there is a beekeeping specialist giving some sort of presentation there. And I usually track these people down and bring them in to set up one of the day's discussions. So thank you for reminding me to do that. I'll, I'll look out for a beekeeper. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. 
This is Sparta! It is Film Spotting Madness. Best of the 1960s. The final four polls are open. You can vote at filmspottingmadness.com or filmspotting.net slash madness. Our polls close on Monday, April 3rd at 11 a.m. We had four contests. That's how the math works, Josh, in the Elite Eight. The matchups were 2001 A Space Odyssey versus The Graduate, Psycho versus Fellini's Eight and a Half, The Apartment versus The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and Lawrence of Arabia versus Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. How about this observation? I don't know if this occurred to either you or Sam, Adam, but Paul Stephens wrote in about the 2001 versus The Graduate matchup and said, I just realized this is the intro to the podcast versus the outro. <laughs> Did you guys plan this? You couldn't have. Didn't plan it. I okay. can actually say that when I saw this matchup first pop up, it occurred to me, but I completely spaced on it last week. And looking at the results, we can say that Hal authoritatively said to Mike Nichols and Dustin Hoffman and Ann Bancroft, this poll can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Yeah, 79% to 21%, I would say so. Mark Salamant on this matchup, Psycho versus 8.5. Psycho is great, but for me, 8.5 is an all-time great. I don't like its chances, but it is my second favorite movie that was in this entire tournament. Well, Josh, no one really runs away from anything, and filmmaker Guido cannot run away from Norman Bates and Mother. Mark's instincts were right. It was a 78% win for Psycho over eight and a half's 22%. Here's Alex Torres on The Apartment versus The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, an especially tough matchup for me. One of my first obsessions when I started my cinephile journey was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Sergio Leone's epic visuals and Ennio Morricone's operatic score blew my mind. I more recently watched and rewatched Billy Wilder's The Apartment, which is pretty much perfect in every single way. Just as Leone's Western looks good, Wilder and IAL Diamond's screenplay crackles like a cozy fire and rewards attentive viewers. In the end, I had to go with the good, the bad, and the ugly for sentimental reasons, but I may be second-guessing myself. Alex Torres, not a mensch. Mike Weston, until today, I had never seen The Apartment, but I took this opportunity to watch it so I could vote in this matchup. That is what madness is really all about. Maybe it's recency bias, Mike writes, but I voted for the apartment, and Mike wasn't alone. It was close, though, 55% to 45% this one, but I'm with Mike and the majority of voters on the apartment. Here's our friend Trip Burton on the round's closest matchup, Lawrence of Arabia versus Dr. Strangelove. Trip says this might be the maddest matchup of all, the perfect satire and the perfect epic. How in the world do you expect us to compare those? I can't imagine a world without either of these films. Luke says, Dr. Strangelove is the rare comedy that is funnier the second time you watch it, and you can watch it twice in less time than Lawrence takes. <laughs> is Lean's masterpiece really twice as good as Kubrick's? I say no, and you can't you can't argue with math. Yeah, I was gonna say the the running time conversation from John Wick carries over here. He's applying some mathematical equations. I don't know, Luke. We got one more comment on this matchup from Daryl K. Patterson. As much as I love Strangelove. I love Lawrence Moore. I also believe that most of the film spotting family will believe as I do that you shouldn't have both Kubrick films in this 60s madness face each other. Therefore, the better Kubrick film should move forward, and that will be 2001. Lawrence of Arabia 
gets the vote. Daryl, this was my thinking. And according to how uh, the votes went out, it kind of uh, bit me here in my predictions. Dr. Strangelove took it 53% over Lawrence of Arabia's 47%. A technical upset in that in terms of the bracket, and we don't go all in on the seeds and make them known there in the bracket like the NCAA does. But Sam and I know the seeding, and we had Lawrence as the number three overall seed. That means the only films we thought would beat it were 2001 and Psycho. However, we had Dr. Strangelove as a six seed, but that's really only because we didn't want to put two Kubrick movies in the top four. It's the Francis Ford Coppola rule in effect the apocalypse now rule from last year in the best of the 70s he had the godfather as the number one overall seed we thought apocalypse now probably belonged in the top four moved it just slightly down to number five strange love definitely could have been at least five and yeah we realistically thought it had a chance to be in that top four so a technical upset here even though strange love is one of those films that many of us thought could beat Lawrence of Arabia. We'll have more on that in a moment. All of our Elite Eight results are available at filmspottingmadness.com. The final four then is set. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Psycho, the top two seeds advance. The Apartment, the number four overall seed advances. And Dr. Strangelove, that sixth seed, moves on as well. But Kubrick is not going to face Stanley Kubrick in this round. They could both advance. To the championship, though, Josh, if our listeners don't have something to say about it, it is 2001 versus The Apartment and Psycho versus Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, and here's where my, you know, love for The Apartment in so many ways and for quite a long time has to admit that it's no 2001, a space odyssey. I mean, it's it's the monumental achievement that is 2001 there's no way I could make an argument. I, mm-hmm. I just could, I could try to talk myself into the apartment and I wouldn't believe myself. And so I'm going to have to go with 2001. Now, as I said, I was surprised that Dr. Strangelove won out over Lawrence of Arabia. My preference for Lawrence of Arabia probably played into that and biased my predictions, but it also makes this a pretty easy vote for me when it yeah. comes to strange love versus psycho. It's, I mean, that's, it's not even, I don't even have to give it any more thought or words. Psycho no, is. I'm with you. And I, I love all four films. I really do. I'm a bigger fan of strange love than you. I think I have it pretty high on my Kubrick ranked list, top three, top four, certainly, but psycho is the choice and 2001 is the choice. You can make your choices now at filmspottingmadness.com. We have our bracket prediction contest results. Wasn't I just saying, or haven't I been saying every week that this is my favorite segment of the show? Yeah. This really is my favorite part of the show. Previously, it only been like a quarter of a page of script. We've got like (laughs) six pages here now we're about to get into. Well, I think we'll, we'll get to, yeah, we'll get to why I have new feelings about this segment here. Mike, Merrigan, the film spotting madness godfather, has had sole possession of first place out of 700 entries since round two, and he continues in the pole position this week. It would take a pretty major and completely unexpected upset for him to lose now. Congrats, early congrats, Mike. 
We also have a film spotting family members only prediction contest going. Last week, Kevin H. in Bloomfield, Michigan was our leader. He picked, though, Josh, the good, the bad, and the ugly to advance and eight and a half. Uh Uh-oh. He's dropped to 20th. No prize pack for him. At the top of the leaderboard, you do the honors. How about this? Long timer. Wow. Is this for real? It's for real. Number one. Brett Merriman? Look at that. Merriman. How about that? Hollywood is the leader of the Film Spotting Family Bracket Contest. Congratulations, Brett. We'll see if it holds. Now, that that brings us to the more important part, our internal bracket contest. Mm. We were just sorting out what the punishment will be. There's no prizes. There's just a punishment. The contenders in this contest are me, you, producer Sam, Mike Merrigan, and the winner of last year's prediction contest, Brett Fisher in Portland, Oregon. Since Mike Merrigan is number one overall, he's obviously in the lead here as well. Yes. Brett Fisher, he's in second. Number eight overall last week, he's moved up to number four. How about Brett Fisher? Just find him, get his email address, and ask him to help you with your picks. You will go far in film spotting madness. Clearly, he's figured out some formula. Josh, you were third last week. Yes. But you took a big tumble. Yes. Down to 162nd place. What? And last in our contest because you missed two. You did go with your heart and pick Lawrence of Arabia over Strangelove. Yeah. And somehow you went against your heart and picked Leone over Wilder. Right. But the listeners, they were on your side. Yeah, um, I should have stuck with the apartment, obviously. And the strange love thing, I don't know. I still am surprised. Even if I set aside my personal bias, I'm really surprised. I think I I think I just overvalue looking at the tournament as a whole and say one filmmaker is likely going to get whittled down to one film. I think that's bitten me in the past as well. And that was the main reason, the, the I thought logical reason not to go with Strange Love is because 2001 was going to possibly go all the way to the top. But apparently for most voters, they don't care. Kubrick could have all Final Four and, and they'd be happy. Yeah. Now, what, is it, what does it say here? Adam moved out of last place into third. I've jumped from 122nd. To 38th overall. Look at you. 38th out of 700. Now, of course, someone is probably listening to me rejoicing right now and saying, you made the bracket. You should do well. (laughs) But it doesn't work out that way, ever. 38th is about as high as I'm probably going to get. I did have a perfect Elite Eight. So I'm out of the cellar. Josh, you're in the cellar. Sam, he dropped to fourth. He is 115th overall. He missed one. He picked Lawrence over Strange Love. It's mm. funny too because I don't remember what he said, but we were filling out our brackets at the same time and we were talking over Slack. And of course, we weren't really divulging our picks, but we were talking about what we thought some of the tougher choices were. And I don't remember what he said, but he said something that it just triggered in my mind. Oh, wait. I had Lawrence of Arabia definitely advancing to the final four. I think I had it losing to Psycho there, but I had it making it to the final four in my mind. I was sure of it. Since the beginning of the tournament, I knew it was going to be in the final four. And Sam said something that just made me kind of question that a little bit. Mm. And I I went to Letterboxd and I looked at a few more rankings here and there. And I said, you know what? I can't believe this, but I think Strange Love is going to beat Lawrence of Arabia. And based on what Sam said, 
I was sure that he too voted for Strange Love. And so our brackets were going to be very different. And then he turned his bracket in and he he had gone with Lawrence. See, Sam, the, the slacking is a trap. It's, it's a trap. all an elaborate That's trap right. to get yeah. pick your brain, get a sense of where you're going. Unsolicited feedback from mm-hmm. Sam on Strange Love and Lawrence, but it helped me here. I went with Strange Love. I knew it would be what decided this internal bracket contest. And we have to say about Mike, we haven't made a big enough deal yet, especially since we just focus on who's getting punished. But we need to make a big deal out of Mike winning this whole thing, despite being the founding father of Film Spotting Madness. And if you are a new listener, what that means is he's the guy, regular listener, who wrote in at one point and said, hey, I've got this idea. What about a bracket-style tournament? Could be about different topics. We said, yeah, that actually sounds like fun. Here well we are now. Worth pointing out. Yeah. Well before, you know, most movie podcasts out there. Good point. Started doing such things. Like as <laughs> far as I know, Mike is like the godfather of movie bracket contests. There overall. you go. I think he, he needs to add that to his business card. Yes. Despite that, despite being a pioneer in this field, he's <laughs> he's never won the bracket contest. He's never even won our internal bracket contest. Last year when we did best of the 70s, I forgot this, Josh. He finished last in our internal one and 683rd out of 768 in the big bracket contest. Wow. I mean, yeah. Considering so my redemption. track record, I'm not going to say anything about no. that. I'm just going to I'm just going to appreciate throw some appreciation his way for taking that crushing loss, sitting on it for a year, internalizing it. Probably being miserable, not able to sleep, not eating healthy. Right. Let's hope worse habits didn't develop as well. But turning all of that pain into this monumental victory that he's on the cusp of. All that negative energy just made him stronger. And he did pay his penalty. We have to give him credit for that. He watched the Kevin James, Sean Payton football movie. Yes. That's all I can say about it. But he has more to say about it, and he sent us an excerpt of his podcast where he and his co-hosts talk about not-so-good movies, and they talked about this not-so-good movie. If you want to hear a portion of that, you can find it at the very end of the podcast version of this show. You can hear Mike talk a little bit about the film that he had to suffer through for Losing Madness. Josh, what you will be doing this year. Is it over? Am, am I out? I I do think it's over because I'm pretty sure all of us, everyone who's part of this contest has the same 2001 beating psycho to win it all. Yeah. So that sounds long, familiar. Well, really, it doesn't matter then how it plays right, out. Right, right, right. It's going to, it's going to hold. The order should hold. All right. So that means I'm probably gonna have to watch murder mystery, two. murder mystery two. Did, and we did get your review of Murder Mystery, Murder Mystery One, One the year you lost, because I'm going yes. to need to reference that to yeah. know what to expect going in, because I'm definitely not watching Murder Mystery in preparation. So, no, and I think you really could get lost. We might have to have a real heavy debriefing on yeah. what to expect for let's Murder do, Mystery let's, Two. Please, let's do that. <laughs> Voting in the final four round, once again, we'll remind you, is on now at filmspottingmadness.com. Sarah Jane's a lovely child. How long have you taken care of her? All her life. Oh, I wish I had someone to look after Susie. A maid to live in. Someone to take care of your little girl. 
a strong, healthy, settled-down woman who eats like a bird and doesn't care if she gets no time off and will work real cheap. <laughs> yes, if one exists. Oh, uh, someday. Why not today? I'm available. You? Me, Annie Johnson. You mean you'd consider leaving that lovely little girl? Oh, I wouldn't be leaving her. My baby goes where I go. Sarah Jane is your child? Yes, ma'am. It surprises most people. Sarah Jane favors a daddy. He was practically white. He left before she was born. That's Juanita Moore and Lana Turner in Douglas Sirk's 1959 film, Imitation of Life. It's the second film in our Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon. It's the only Sirk film that made the Top 100. Imitation of Life landed at 93. Douglas Sirk began his career in Germany in the 1930s, but is best known for the Technicolor melodramas that he made in Hollywood in the mid to late 1950s. Among them, Magnificent Obsession, All That Heaven Allows, Written on the Wind, and Imitation of Life. While doomed or forbidden romances feature prominently in many of those films, what distinguishes Imitation of Life is its depiction of race in the form of Juanita Moore's maid, Annie, and her daughter, Sarah Jane, played by Susan Conner as a teenager. Sarah Jane becomes determined to pass as white, even if it means abandoning the mother who loves her and is devoted to her. Lana Turner as Laura Meredith is a single mother as well, determined to succeed as an actress, her real troubles only begin once she starts to experience some of that success. The film opens with her early struggles, then skips ahead 10 years after she's become a star. Annie and Laura have remained friends throughout all those years, slash employee employers. That's probably what we'll get into, Adam, as Annie does still live and work as the housekeeper for Laura as her career rises. John Gavin is also in the cast. He plays Turner's love interest, and Sandra Dee is Turner's daughter as a teenager. You know who's also in the movie briefly, but really unfortunately memorably for us Grease fans, not only Sandra Dee, but as for you, Troy Donahue appears in this film as well. Josh, as the title of our marathon suggests, these films are all blind spots for us. I think we've both seen at least one Douglas Sirk film, maybe one or two more for you. How much did you know about this film going in? And were you ultimately surprised by its pretty candid and searing depiction of race? Yeah, I was. And I think it's the most fascinating element of the movie. I think if you broke down, you know, scenes devoted to what ideas or narrative threads Probably Laura's career, as well as, you know, the on-again, off-again relationship she has with uh, the John Gavin character gets more screen time, I think. Mm -hmm. But, man, I just could not believe that a movie in 59 was tackling these questions and tackling them with, you know, I wouldn't say that you could describe this movie necessarily as intentionally progressive like it was a, it's a message movie or a social drama i think it's just intimately deeply interested in these two women and how race and class which are intertwined define what they can and gender i should say gender as well right mm -hmm. what they can and cannot do and right from the very beginning we realize that these are two women who have the odds stacked against them because laura is a single mother and a struggling actor 
Yet we also recognize that Annie has more odds stocked against her. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to see this movie give so much time to the realities of that for both of these characters while never, you know, losing its grip on individual narratives for either of them. Again, Laura gets most of the attention for sure, but I think Annie's story gets a full, well-rounded space to breathe. Mm -hmm. It's a tragic story. And that was something that also kind of shocked me about a film in 1959, that it was really going to roll up its sleeves and get into this stuff. And it absolutely does. So I thought that was very much to its credit. I did as well. I think that is all well said. This movie surprised me in a lot of ways, mainly because of its depiction of race. And all you have to do is look at how the story ultimately goes. Where does this movie end up? And I know it's a movie that is how many years old do the math like 63 years old, 64 years old, but I don't want to spoil too much for people that are maybe listening to this and haven't seen it like we hadn't until this viewing through two movies. Josh, we talked about Sancho and the bailiff a couple of weeks ago. I don't know what our marathon specific award is going to be for this marathon yet. We have to get through a few more films, but we could just go really simple and draw on our rap parties and go with most moving moment. And we've got, We've got five contenders, at least so far, yeah. just out of these two films. In this film, the embrace that we get, that's all I'm going to say, between Annie and her daughter, Sarah Jane, the hug that happens quite late in this film, the scene, the final scene between Annie, between Juanita Moore and Lana Turner, and that closing, that culmination. There's a great line in this movie where Annie says something like weddings and funerals are the most important days or something, right. the most significant days we have as humans. And it made me think about how one of the films I was thinking about a lot watching this movie was a movie from our Barbara Stanwyck marathon, yes. Stella Dallas, right? A marathon movie. And what does that movie end with? One of the most heartbreaking scenes from a wedding a wedding moment ever. And this movie does end with one of the most heartbreaking funeral <laughs> scenes ever. I mean, I was, I was actively crying watching this film today. That's how much it moved me. And I think it's a testament to how seriously and how sensitively Cirque portrays these characters and the subject matter. And I'm not going to say this isn't a melodrama. I also don't want to suggest that melodrama is a bad word, but mm -hmm. I was really surprised by the extent to which this movie didn't seem to tap into some of the more conventional trappings of melodrama. I think I had prepared myself maybe for even more coincidences and contrivances, and I would have been okay with that because I know that's part of this genre but Cirque and the screenwriters here, Eleanor Griffin and Alan Scott, don't get me wrong, they're they're relentless at times, right? Steve barely gets a beat of happiness ever. This happens three, four times in the film. He'll get he'll get one moment where it looks like he's finally gonna get what yeah. he wants. We're gonna be together, we're gonna love each other, we're gonna be happy. And the second he feels that, the second he feels it. <laughs> work calls literally sometimes work Steve calls. really needs to wise up I mean I know. he's her her ambition calls if they make any kind of plan together 
she gets offered a job and it's over just like that. But he keeps coming back. I was waiting though for the big tragedy. And I don't mean what we get at the end of the film, what it builds to, what it really kind of gradually builds to. I kept waiting for something to happen to Sarah Jane or something was going to happen to Susie. Something that occurs because of all these emotional machinations. And things do happen to both of those young girls. And things happen to all the characters that are emotional and they're dramatic. But they don't ever feel, or I never felt, like I was being sucker punched. So glad you mentioned our Barbara Stanwyck marathon. That came to mind for me as well. And Stella, Stella Dallas, you're exactly right. That's that's very much a parallel here. The one I was thinking of, though, was Babyface. And if you recall, Stanwyck's character there runs away from her abusive father early mm-hmm. in the film and runs away with Chico, played by Teresa Harris, who was, I believe, a servant of her father's. And at the beginning, they're friends, right? They're both in similar situations, trying to start a new life as independent women. The odds are stacked against them. And here we have mm. Annie and Laura meeting in the right. same way on the beach as friends. And I think one of the very early signs that this movie is not going to pull any punches, it's not going to be wish fulfillment progressive in a way, is we recognize how quickly Laura and Annie fall into familiar roles, societally defined roles based on class and race. Yes. And I think on Laura's part, it's a little bit out of habit. You don't get the sense that she really believes she's any better than Annie, but this is just how the world works. Mm -hmm. And there's a great scene where she is in a meeting with a potential agent to represent her and she gives him her home phone number knowing Annie is going to pick up. And when she, he says something, I forget exactly how it plays out, but she identifies her as, oh, that's Annie, my maid. My maid. Now that's not technically at this point in their relationship who Annie is, but it is such a crucial scene because Laura is making a moral choice there about how she's going to think about Annie and use Annie. And here's why this movie is so good. We completely understand it. Right. We may not, say we would hope we wouldn't do the same thing, but Laura is not necessarily a clear villain. We understand that in this moment for her to get ahead in her career, this is an obvious choice to make. And the other thing that's interesting about this movie, Adam, is the way it portrays Annie as a woman of a certain generation where she she believes this is a good situation for me, even though I am in some ways demeaning myself, working harder than I should for too little money. It is the better choice. Yes. And then the movie recognizes that, no, you deserve more. How? By giving us Sarah Jane, who is a character who can pass for white, realizes she deserves everything any other white girl does. Now, how she goes about achieving that is cruel. And occasionally monstrous. And in some ways, you can come away from imitation of life liking her character the least, while at the same time sympathizing with her the most. Because think of all the identities she's struggling with. Think about being raised in this home Mm -hmm. by a rising Hollywood actress as a sort of stepdaughter slash 
cocktail waitress who gets pretty much what she wants, but doesn't get the horse that Susie gets. I mean, think about how that would mess with your mind. And so Mm -hmm. even when Sarah Jane makes the decision to, in, in a lot of ways, betray Annie or not want to be associated with her again, the wrong moral choice in that relationship we completely understand it. So I think this speaks to what you were getting at in terms of the complications going on in a melodrama that is not just about the plot developments or the tragic circumstances that these characters find themselves in. And I was kind of thinking about this melodrama idea you brought up, Adam, and I, I was asking myself, you know, how is imitation of life different than something like a soap opera? What's the difference between a melodrama And a soap opera. And I think at the end of this movie, one thing I came to is that the emotions we experience register more strongly than the plot developments. I I tend to think of soap opera as Mm -hmm. plot forward. To your point, devastating revelations, coincidences. Um, Debbie and the the high school are making their way through the old gossip girl recently. And and so I walk in the room and that's on. And I was asking myself, okay, so how is Imitation of Life any different than Gossip Girl, right? In some ways you could say on the surface, these are similar stories, but it's that emphasis on emotion in a way that resonates with authenticity that is the primary driver of everything that happens rather than letting these surprising, tragic big developments because you're yes. right. This is a big movie otherwise, it is. right? There yeah. are huge emotions here. So it's not that it's not emotional. You're right. And I think you said the key word in terms of authentic authenticity, this notion of the title, the imitation of life. We can talk about it in a variety of ways from the host of mirror shots that Cirque gives us from the different types of performances characters put on within performances like the one you mentioned that's an entire ruse that she puts on to try to get this job and have the agent go ahead and call her house she knows that it will play out or she thinks it will play out to her advantage sarah jane of course passing as white even Susie trying to pass as an older more sophisticated girl and love interest eventually of steve this movie is filled with those types of characters who aren't bad or nefarious in any way but they aren't authentically themselves. And Annie is a character who I think as written and portrayed by Moore is authentically herself. Now that could be problematic too, in that she's a character who it comes naturally to her to serve Laura. That's, that's who she is. Not just Laura, though the movie makes a point. She serves everyone in a way. She is a naturally very nurturing figure. Well, a lesser movie could fall into a trap of portraying her then as a mammy like character. And that's a term that comes up a couple times in this film, mm-hmm. but that, that isn't one I think you could ever lob at Annie or lob at this film. And some of that authenticity too comes forth in a scene like we get at the end of the film. I wonder if you had a similar reaction to it that I did. It's a little bit of a stunt here on Cirque's part, but I think the movie pulls it off. We get a performance by Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. singing a gospel number in a church. At one point, as she's singing, Sir cuts to and lingers on some black men, some older black men who are all, I think, in the front row. And I think they might be pallbearers. The suggestion is they're probably people from her church, men from her church that that were friendly with Annie. Some of those people that 
Laura admits at one point she never knew existed. Yeah. Because she didn't know enough about her life. And he calls her out take on the it. the time. Yeah. Didn't take the time to know enough about her life to know that she had friends. She assumed she didn't have friends because she never saw them or never asked about them. But these older men, they're sitting there in that pew. And that lingering shot, Josh, is one of the more haunting moments in the film for me. It's almost a moment where narrative and documentary could blur because it has a potency to it where it feels like none of the men in that scene are acting. It feels like all of those men with those life experiences, with their life experiences, are experiencing the pain of what Mahalia Jackson is singing about in that moment. My trouble of this world Oh, my trouble in this world Love and trouble in this world Lord, how soon I will be done to trouble of this world Yeah, it's an incredible sequence, and I just, I kind of, it is moving, an emotional way you describe, but I was kind of chuckling, too, because here is Annie, as you say, the quietest character, the most long-suffering character. I think every time we see her, she is doing something for someone else. That's right. But, and I I mean, we we can spoil it, all right? We get this long scene of her. It's clear for a while she's not well. Yes. <laughs> a long scene of her on her literal deathbed. Yes. And I just kind of loved how she spends her time dictating, <laughs> this is what I want. That's for, right. For my funeral. For, I know. And, and I want every, you know, and they're all taking notes. And I just love that this moment, Annie is like, okay, I, I've had enough. You're going to do for me now. And so when that long funeral sequence, it's beautiful in all the ways you described, but the bigger it got, the more ostentatious I got. Like I said, oh, there's those four white horses she wanted. The four white horses. I love it. It was so, it was so great to watch that. And let me be clear within the movie, it's not Mahalia Jackson. She's from the church and she's from the choir and she's singing, but I love that she actually wants and expresses the desire for something grand and ostentatious like that. And at the end of it, the procession is such, the way Cirque shoots it, all the people on the street outside the church, they're standing there, they're looking on as if it was the funeral for Laura Meredith, Mm -hmm. for maybe a famous actress. Yes. But it's not, but they they don't know who it's for. But the way they have set up this proceeding it's as if it's it's a state funeral and everybody <laughs> yeah. has to look as as the procession goes by. And there is something that is ironic, of course, about that, but also very rewarding because you you believe that she deserves that reward yes. unequivocally. Now, when we're talking about movies like Babyface as well, another connection, I think you're you're dead on with that parallel. But the other parallel or another is in terms of the characters we get here as victims or not victims. That was another surprise for me. You feel like you know where it's going once she's in that office with Alan Loomis. You feel like, and it does go there to an extent, but you think you know where it might end. And I was really cringing at the scene of Laura's first big success. The play is a hit. 
She's getting some accolades for her supporting turn. And we see the playwright, the esteemed playwright. Yes. Kick everybody out of the house. He's going to have his quiet moment to take care of her or slash take advantage of her. I was so sure I was, I was pre cringing Josh watching it. I was so sure something terrible was going to happen. The justice she's getting her first taste of success and happiness. Oh, the compromises would commence. She'd be taken advantage of. He'd assert some kind of power over her and maybe she would be powerless against him. But who takes control in that scene? Who takes control romantically in that scene? It's her, not him. And I don't think the film suggests at all that this was all some grand manipulation on her part. It's not babyface-esque in that way mm-hmm. or that she had bad intentions from the beginning. But by the end, when that relationship dissolves, who gets more out of the relationship and who is in the position of power when the relationship ends or I should say is ended? It's it's her. That, yes. that was really wonderful to watch. And Lana Turner is great at, I think, embodying all of these conflicting parts of herself. The part that wants to be taken care of, the part that doesn't really want to be in control, but the part that is also longing for some control, wants to assert herself, and has these great ambitions. It helps when you've got Cirque and his DP, Russell Meddy, and they know how to light her. And they know how to use lighting and composition to accentuate her performance. That scene where she tells off John Gavin, who I just saw in Spartacus for the first time. He plays Caesar in Spartacus as I was doing my and, homework. And Sam in Psycho, speaking oh, of recent of course, films we watched. I knew yeah. he was very familiar. I'd seen him back to back. And you see him here as Steve. That scene where she says, well, I'm going up and up and up. And nobody's going to pull me down. That's the closest thing you get to noir lighting in a Douglas Cirque film. Note how they incorporate heavy shadows on her face in those close-ups. They they give her a real fierceness, an aggressiveness in that moment that we have not up to that point seen from Laura. It's not that it comes out of nowhere or it doesn't feel natural. Again, I think that's the strength of the performance, but Cirque is going to add some of those elements that are going to cue us into, oh, she she can be dominant when she wants to be. And I'm not going to portray this woman as someone who is just going to be a victim and have no agency. Right. Yeah. I want to get to some of the filmmaking, but yeah, that moment where Laura is, I think intoxicated is the word with her success standing on the playwright's balcony. You do see a shift there and you see, this is part of the ambivalence the movie has to its credit. You see that, that it is at once admiring her for this ambition and Mm -hmm. achievement. Yes. But also being very clear about the, you know, familial costs, whether it is in relation to Steve or to her daughter, Susie, especially as her daughter grows older and she is not able to pursue her career, sustain her career in a way she wants and be the sort of mother that she wants. And the movie recognizes it. it's not condemning her in either way. It's just recognizing the difficulties of that situation. I think Turner is great in that intoxication scene. It's probably my favorite moment of hers, but I do have to say my favorite performance in this is from Susan Conner as Sarah Jane as a teen. As I said before, I think it's the most complicated part and she has something that even Turner sort of lacks, though maybe it doesn't matter. I I kept thinking 
what would Joan Crawford have done with this Laura part? Because I think Turner's great in it, but it's also one that I could see Crawford just devouring. And then part of it is a, is a you know, a situation of coloring. Conor has darker eyebrows, darker hair, darker eyes overall, which make me think of Crawford. But she has this ferociousness as Sarah Jane that is just going to, you know, it's diving right into the melodrama in mm-hmm. a good way that also speaks to the character's desperation and the way she is struggling bitterly, bitterly to establish her own identity, making terrible choices in the process, putting herself at great risk in the process, and again, being being monstrous but also pitiable at, at the same time. So I really Absolutely. thought really thought Conor was was a standout here. Well, why can't you leave me alone? I tried, Sarah Jane. You'll never know how hard I tried. Well, might as well pack. Look, baby, I suppose you've been to the boss. Lost me my job, my friends. I've been no place. I didn't come to bother you. Well, you won't. Not ever again. Spoil things for me here, and I'll just go somewhere else, and I'll keep on going until you're so tired, baby. I am tired. I'm as tired as I ever want to be. You mind if I sit down? Yes, I do. She's ferocious, to use your word, but it is so fitting to the character because she somehow is able to suggest that this anger, this rage that is inside her, is not something that can just be solved by one opportunity or a certain boyfriend. This is this is a trauma. Mm, this is trauma yeah, that has yeah. been with her her entire life. And Annie, her mother, says something along those lines when she explains to Laura that the last place they were, she says, any place is better than where we were. This back room, whatever you give me, because the last place we were, she says something like it, it put the devil in her or it, it deviled her about yes, her identity. Deviled. Yep. Right? So- that that sense that she has almost been possessed with this this illness of of having to question herself of not wanting to be who she really is of not being proud of her identity and heritage that that does come through in her performance for sure Susan Conner who got nominated for best supporting actress for this role as did Juanita Moore and also just random bit of trivia Susan Conner the mother of Chris and Paul White's what yeah she is the mother of Chris and Paul Weitz. And if you if you look at pictures of them, you can huh. see absolutely that? the resemblance. One other trivia tidbit that I'm guessing if I didn't mention, you would get to it, Josh, because you tend to like to bring this up and I'll beat you to it. It already came up two for two here on the show. Great costumes. Yeah. Oh, man. Lana Turner as Laura Meredith. I'd love to see her in a movie with Bill Skarsgård, with the marquee. Let's put them together in a film. I have to see if we can make that happen. According to Wikipedia, producer Ross Hunter was cannily aware that some of the plot changes, and this is referring to plot changes from the 1930s version of Imitation of Life, would enable Lana Turner to model an array of glamorous costumes and real jewels, something that would appeal to the female audience at the time. Lana Turner's wardrobe for Imitation of Life cost over $1.078 million, wow. making it one of the most expensive in cinema history at the time. Yeah, in the original, which is, I think, a blind spot for both of us, since mm-hmm. you haven't invoked it yet, we, we both need to see it. 
that one doesn't have any Broadway element or or star component to it. Also, they knew what they were doing. This was a shrewd business move, but it is a shrewd business move that pays off in terms of my enjoyment of the film. Oh, and in terms of character and and in one of those Cirque visual flourishes, the opening credits, and I think the end credits as well, are diamonds falling from the top of the screen to the bottom against a black background. So luxury wealth is very much at play here. And I think the costume design is employed extremely astutely in this way. As the film progresses, Laura's dresses get more and more elaborate. Mm-hmm. The wraps, the fur start, you know, it's almost as if when we first meet her, she just wears what she wears for the day, right? And then the more we go on, we realize when she goes out of the house, it's going to require many layers topped off with this, you know, stole that's wrapped around her before she is presentable because she has attained this status represented yeah. by her she clothes. She has to play the part. She's got to play the part. Notice, and I haven't gone back and tracked this, I would not be surprised if Annie's dress changes once throughout the film. I think Mm. of her now, and I think of her as wearing probably not the exact same plain dress she wore when we met her on the beach, but I don't think it's changed all that much 10 to 12 years later when she is now living in this same opulent home as Laura. Mm -hmm. But, you know, costume design-wise hasn't really changed all that much. I do have a favorite shot and favorite line in this movie that I haven't mentioned yet, but I think I'm going to save it because surely this film is going to come up at the end of this marathon when we do our awards. And I think this moment will have to be a contender for me. I liked it that much for overall best scene. I'm going to sit on it. I'm going to try to build some more suspense there, Josh, with All right, our I'm, audience. I might have the same one. We'll see when we get to that point. Ooh. I'll just throw out a shot here because it's not actually that instrumental, but it is one example of the Cirque I thought I was getting. I've only seen one other Cirque film, All That Heaven Allows. Mm-hmm. And what I remember from it is a lot of the same stuff in terms of emotional authenticity that we're talking about. But just the production design and the use of color is the first thing that came to mind. And for a while, that's all at play. And you described well how the cinematography is employed, especially to capture Laura's character. But I was thinking, hmm, this is, you know, this is a little more restrained than what I might have expected. And then we get one little flash early on while they're still living in this small apartment, kind of down on their luck. But this is a sequence where we're going to meet Sarah Jane, young Sarah Jane at this point, who's in school, passing as white in her public school. And Annie is coming to bring her lunch, I think. So yes. we know this is no, going to her boots, her, her boots, rain yes. boots. Yeah. So we know this is going to be a point of conflict that Sarah Jane isn't going to want this. How does Cirque establish this scene? A shot outside of this bland gray brick public school snow falling for a little bit of, you know, contrast, but basically gray and white huge in the front left foreground of the screen, the brightest red fire plug you've ever fire hydrant you've ever seen (laughs) in your life, just raising the alarm for what Mm. we're about to experience. And sure enough, there's a confrontation between mother and daughter in the school. Sarah Jane actually runs out of the school. I think she goes past the fire hydrant and they end up arguing in front of a Christmas tree lot where there's just this huge red sign, Christmas trees for sale. That's, that's kind of the Cirque that I was, I was hoping for. And then as of course, 
you know, Laura gets more into her opulent lifestyle. We're we're in these homes where the yes. walls are like all painted, and they pink. seem to expand. The shots oh my seem gosh. to get bigger yes. as she gets bigger. Yep, and then you get some of that again use of art direction, production design to evoke um, emotion and character, which is just great stuff. Yeah, he's not going to have two characters run into a gray parking lot. And argue. Is <laughs> right, it? exactly. Imitation of Life is currently available. VOD from many outlets. The Sight and Sound Top 100 Blind Spots Marathon will continue in a couple of weeks with Rainer Werner Fossbinder's Fear Eats the Soul. I have seen some Fossbinder films. I wasn't necessarily expecting that this film would give me much of an emotional reaction. But to my point earlier, I tweeted today that after these first two films, we should have approached Kleenex to sponsor the marathon. These films are making me weep so much. And our friend Ofer Liebergal from Tel Aviv replied and said, oh, Fear Eats the Soul is also really heavy. Great. All right. I'll, I'll buckle up. <laughs> yeah. More information about this marathon, the complete lineup, and where to find the films where you can do your homework and follow along with these discussions. Filmspotting.net slash marathons. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. Over at FilmSpotting.net, or you could go to FilmSpottingMadness.com, you can vote in the final four round of Film Spotting Madness 2023 Best of the 1960s. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to FilmSpotting.net slash shop. We are listener supported here on Film Spotting. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. The March bonus show, a 1993 movie draft. We went back 30 years. Me, you, and Sam is available now in the premium feed for our family members who have access to it. Josh, what can we say? What would you like to say about the 1993 movie draft? I mean, I'm probably best off pretending it didn't happen. Is uh, is Sam still crushing both of us? In I think the, he is. In the listener vote? As yeah, to who as he should be. I mean, draft? we said it. We said it at the end of the show. He clearly won the draft. <sighs> that he was, just did. That was just a travesty, I guess. That's what I would I would say. It's a travesty for A travesty? Yes. Well, here's, here's what I'm going to say about it. I referenced Blank Check a little bit earlier, and they are so much bigger in stature than us. They've got their own Reddit page devoted to their comings and goings and the Yikes. happenings on the show. So when I was on to talk about millions, there was a, a thread about it and someone asked a question. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm getting these two words exactly right. Someone said, I really like those guys. Speaking of me and you, Josh, but are they ever silly billies? Hmm. A reference to that show, Blank Check, and you think about, you know, I like to think we're not very stuffy. We're not overly stuffy here on Film Spotting. But when you're going up against two pretty brilliant comedic minds in David Sims and Griffin Newman, it can make you feel like maybe you are overly stuffy. Sure. Which is all to say, my feeling after recording that 1993 movie draft is that's about the best example of us being silly billies that you can find. It's, Boy. it's kind of off the rails. Yeah, that's another good way to describe it. Um, silly billies. Okay. <laughs> we need to use that phrase more often, too, not, by the way. I don't think I was familiar with that one, but I'll, I'll take it. Sure. From our archive, if you have access as a film spotting family member to past shows, 
you could check out episode 622. We missed, like a lot of people, John Wick in theaters back in 2014. So in 2017, we did a Sacred Cow review along with a review of John Wick 2. You could also go back to 729. We talked about John Wick 3, and we did our top five Keanu Reeves moments. Those shows and so much more at filmspottingfamily.com. In limited release, you can see The Five Devils from director Leia Missius, a child gifted with the ability to time travel, witnesses the traumas of her family's past. Sounds like a lot of silly Billy action, I think. <laughs> Our friend Isaac Feldberg says, formally ravishing. Okay, then we've got Ennis Main, which is at the Music Box. From director Mark Jenkin, he did a film back in 2019 called Bait. This new one is about a wildlife volunteer on an uninhabited island who descends into madness. A horror film. Bait was a horror film. A lot of people recommended it for the Golden Brick. A lot of our UK-based yes, listeners for the Golden right. Brick back in 19. But it hadn't gotten a release in 19 for us to see it and consider it for that award that year. I don't think either of us have caught up with it since, have we? No, no. That one slipped through the cracks. And I'm glad this is bringing it back because it might be worth seeing it and yes. then catching up with Ennis Main. On Netflix, a film one of us, but only one of us, will have to watch Murder Mystery 2. Oh, boy. With Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston. Coming to Apple TV+, Plus, Tetris, the true account of an American video game salesman played by Taron Edgerton and his attempt to bring the game from Russia to the world. Josh, were you ever a Tetris guy? So was that on, like, a Nintendo? I think so, yes. The handheld, right? Yeah, handheld, and I think there was a console version. Okay. I, I never had either, but poor I do. deprived child. I know. I know. We didn't, we were like the only family on the block without cable too. It was horrible. Uh, but I do remember playing. I remember I could picture holding it in my hand and seeing those blocks going across the screen. I don't know. I probably, <laughs> I'm sure I beat up some kid and stole his Nintendo Game I'm, Boy. That I'm quite sounds certain. like me. Yeah. I'm quite certain that you did. In wide release, you weren't playing Tetris because you were too busy having honor among thieves you were playing dungeons and dragons that movie is out with chris pine michelle rodriguez and hugh grant it comes to us from the directors of your beloved game night you're going to be oh, first in line for dungeons game and dragons night, top 10 film of its year and yeah probably the only thing that would get me out to see this is that fact also adam not only could we not afford cable or video games of any kind we could not afford a dungeon you and dragons you roll a die game set <laughs> couldn't afford, when I was a kid either. Couldn't so afford I, dice. I missed out on that as well. Oh, I, I just, Josh. you know, I, I, I ate porridge and read the Hobbit yeah. instead. And yet I'm guessing somehow you afforded a pair of Air Jordans. You had some oh. Air Jordans like all the cool kids. So funny story. Um, grandma and grandpa came through on that one. Did they? Yeah. It was pretty not, not the Sky Jordans like I owned the knockoffs. Did you own the Air Jordans? <sighs> I think I did. I think they somehow had a grandma and grandpa who spoiled us. Not to the point. I mean, they wouldn't pay our cable bill, so I don't know what their problem was. But <laughs> or buy you dice, but or dice. But yeah, I did manage to to snag a pair of those. I, I'm still you know iffy on seeing Air, but. You mm. know. Well, I'm excited to see Air, Ben Affleck, directing there, also co-starring with his buddy Matt Damon. We'll talk about that next week. 
That's me and Michael Phillips, I should say, from the Tribune. We'll also talk about showing up, the latest from Kelly Reichert, and you'll hear my conversation with Kelly Reichert. Looking forward to having Michael back on the show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Adam, Josh, Sam, and Film Spotting Nation, this is Madness Founding Father Mike Merrigan. On a recent episode of Film Spotting, I believe it was Josh that claimed, I never paid my debt for having lost the Madness tournament last year. And to that I say, how dare you? Not only did I make good on the promise to watch the most recent Happy Madison production, Home Team, but in fact I did an entire episode review for it for my upcoming podcast, Film Jitsu the podcast that wields films like Deadly Weapons. The podcast is getting ready to debut next month, and the full episode on Home Team will come out later on this year. But I wanted to share an excerpt from my review for the listeners so that everybody knows Merrigans pay their debts. So I hope you enjoy this segment of Film Jitsu, where myself and co-host Jason Santo discuss Home Team, a movie where Sandler regular Kevin James portrays New Orleans Saints head coach Sean Payton during his suspension from the NFL when apparently he coached a children's football team because that's a movie. And there are people who have been watching his movies throughout their adolescence and into their adulthoods. I am of that age. Adam Sandler's from the town I graduated high school in. I have shamelessly enjoyed a lot of Adam Sandler movies. I, of course, like a good serious drama with stakes and all the stuff that my film spotting friends are so accustomed to and used to. And what makes that podcast so great and and frankly so much better than ours is that those are real (laughs) movies about people who do real things and discussed by people who know what they're talking about. I have just, I have just seen happy Gilmore a bunch, right? So, okay, here comes the heart to heart scene. And the kid looks at him and goes, so why did you kick the onside's kick in the Super Bowl? Oh my god! And I was like, so it turns out he's exactly like his father. Well, or whatever, not even like not even kind of that. He's like he asked the question that I would want to ask Sean Payton, <laughs> but Sean Payton isn't my father. That's been absent in my life for absent. all these times, and now I'm living with Adam Sandler's wife. It's crazy. I thought that this was going to be more like the kind of character rebuilding stuff that Ivan Reitman did with Howard Stern when they did Private Parts. Yeah. No. You're saying no to me on this one, right? It's This is sort of like the good news bears. <laughs> the kids aren't spewing racial slurs, which that alone seems like a step in the right direction. <laughs> film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.